All right, hello everybody and welcome to the first of the monthly panel discussions. Moving forward, each month I'll work with the regenerative skills community to explore an aspect of earth and life regeneration by speaking to the most influential voices on a given subject. Like everything else on this show, this will be a collaborative effort. Now, if you're among the members who participate in the discussions on our Discord chat room, you can help me decide not only the topics to explore, but help me to nominate the panelists and questions during the discussion. Now, if you're a subscribing Patreon member, you'll also be invited to the live events and the open Q&A after the panel. Now, in this first panel, I was invited to host a discussion on regenerative agriculture with my friends and colleagues at Climate Farmers, which is a nonprofit organization working to advance regenerative ag in Europe. Through their launch event back in November of last year, I had the pleasure of speaking with Richard Perkins in Sweden, who is the co-owner and director of Ridgedale Permaculture and a leading expert and educator on small-scale regenerative agriculture. Patrick Worms from Belgium, the senior science policy advisor at World Agroforestry, president of the European Agroforestry Federation and trustee of the International Union of Agroforestry. And the third panelist, Benedict Busel from Germany, the managing director of Gut & Busel, board member of Soil Alliance, chairman of the ag tech platform Bundesverband Deutsch Startup EV. I hope I pronounced that right, I have no idea. In this episode, we discuss each of their visions for a regenerative agriculture future, and just as importantly, how they think it could be actualized. From there, we break down the current obstacles to those visions, the essential steps forward, and how everyone can participate in advancing regenerative farming practices wherever they live. Now, the best part about these panels, for me at least, is that it's not just about me getting my own questions answered, but I get to see what these people speak about amongst themselves and how they relate their ideas between one another. Now, remember, if you wanna be involved in these chats in the future, the Discord chat room that I host will always be free, and all you need to do to participate is to follow the links at regenerativeskills.com. So with that out of the way, let's get things started. All right, welcome gentlemen. It's great to speak with each of you again. Now to start our discussion today, I'd like to understand what could a regenerative agriculture future look like specifically for Europe? And what's the vision that you have that you would hope to see realized in the near future? If we could start out with Richard. Okay, hey Oliver, nice to see you again. Hi everyone. Um, for me, I, I guess what I'm interested in and what got me interested in this whole thing is to see communities that are supported by small farms and this idea, something I really took from Keyline Design, which has been a big influence on my career, is the idea of farm independence of water. And we see all around the world these big mega dams supported by the IMF and the World Bank and often displacing hundreds of thousands, up to a million people in one go with the promise of water access and relocation to other lands and then never actually getting those things. But we don't need those big mega dams. We need thousands of small water resources governing the living populations. And I see farms in the same light as that. We need a hundred or a thousand small farms around a city producing its food and reintegrating the resource base around the people that are gathered in that watershed, hopefully. One of my great ambitions was to, to write a book in a kind of wistful way about 
a key lime plan for the whole of the United Kingdom. That was going to be like my parting gift <laughs> to the world. <laughs> but this kind of thinking of like how to section up the land and resource base to the population centers. And I, that's how I'd like to see the future. It's the future I'd like my kids to grow up in is real food security where farms around the population base are supplying the, the majority of the food needs for those places rather than big mega industrial farms providing commodities on a very abstract global market and there's no real food security there. So that's my, yeah, that's what I would like to see is lots more small farms taking and, and working together interdependently, you know, not trying to be an isolated island, but starting to communicate and to work together in a different way. And I think that's the next step for these small regenerative farms is how do we work together in a much more cohesive way. Benedict, would you like to build upon that statement? Yeah, sure. First of all, um, thanks for the invitation and hi to everybody. Um, I think, you know, what we um, really have to take into consideration is sort of the context uh, and, and location specificity of, of farming, right? Because the, the needs and the situations are just so fundamentally different from place to place, not only from the sort of soil and, and climate factors, but also from the, the kind of values that you have, the kind of machinery that you have, the kind of risk return profiles you have and so forth. And I think this is something what we really have to keep in mind. And I think in, in, in addition to that, of course, we have to talk about somehow forms of support. So some some form of subsidization programs. And I think my ideal, let's say vision of, of agriculture in, in Europe would be to not only let's say monitor and monetize the true cost of the production, but also think about the real values that are already being created in by different farming methods, because I think this will bring a natural energy and, and, and movement towards farming methodologies that actually do carry account of the soil and the biodiversity and the nutrient density of food and so forth. And I think, you know, technology brings in such an amazing potential to really overcome some of the things that we weren't at all possible to, to monitor. And um, I think technology, if it's you know, not being developed out of an exploitative understanding of ecosystems, it can actually help us immensely in, in finding ways and helping farmers um, to find their context and location specific ways of agriculture that let's say as the least common denominator can you know, at least build soil and then of course you have derivatives of it which which go more into biodiversity but always in, in relation to you know the potential that you have on your uh, on your specific areas very well said and we do have patrick here now so patrick since you joined us a little late let me repeat the question that we had which was we're discussing what could a regenerative agriculture future in europe look like and what vision do you have to see it realized uh, thanks, Oliver, and, and sorry for being late. Um, I, I think that I'm not interested in the vision of what the future will look like because we don't know enough to understand what a perfectly regenerative landscape management system that provides us with the food and the fiber and the timber we need while respecting planetary boundaries will actually look like. But what we do know is the general direction of travel and so what's interesting for me is the journey of how we get from where we are today 
to where we need to be. And there is two aspects to that journey. The first aspect to the journey is one that most of us are probably concerned about. And this is um, an aspect to the journey of what I would call specialty farming, uh, horticulture, um, uh, fruits, uh, livestock, eggs, milk, um, making cheese, that sort of thing. That farm, that kind of farming is easier to transform because it has more value added. It's easier to make money from that. But where the real problem lies is in the vast tracts of the landscapes across Europe and North America and Ukraine and elsewhere that are covered with these giant fields of monoclonal cereals and rapeseed and, and, and corn and whatever. And, and there, I'd just like to share a story. A few years ago, I was cycling. I live in Brussels. I was cycling from Brussels to visit friends in, in Normandy. And we crossed that area, an area of France called the Artois. It's just south of the Belgian border, between the Belgian border and, and Normandy. Um, vast, vast landscapes of really, really rich soil. And that soil was a curse of the entire area because that area had become death personified. First, the First World War went through. So all the buildings, all the villages were rebuilt in the 1920s with the cheapest materials available back then. It doesn't look great. Second, all the farms died and were replaced by giant fields with very few farmers because with modern farming, it's easy to manage enormous tracts of land with machinery and one individual. And what that means is that society collapsed because the minimum density of people in that landscape dropped too low for things like schools or shops or cafes or churches to survive. So the villagers died. And so now the people are leaving because no person of your generation will want to stay in that landscape to farm your father's land simply because it'll be impossible for you to settle down and have a family. There are no shops, there are no schools. It's like living on the bloody moon. And so all the young people are leaving and the old people are staying and they're getting cancers and they're dying. And when they die, their land goes to giant corporations who don't care that the landscape looks like a desert because they are managing hundreds of thousands of hectares like that in one go from the comfort of an office in a city. That is a much more difficult problem to solve than the first kind of problem. So you asked me, what does the future look like? That I don't know. But I know one thing. I know that the journey has to start with the lived experience of the farmer. And that right now, the farmers who are suffering the most, the farmers whose suicide rates are the highest, the farmers who are those farmers who we all love to hate, the farmers on the big farms in the empty landscapes, who for the last 20 years have gone down the wrong road of becoming ever more efficient, getting ever bigger machinery, depending ever more on the cleverness that is to be found in some engineered seed or a bag of fertilizer. If we can find a way of making the, the troubles that these farmers are facing our own, if we can find a way of helping these farmers change their farming practices so that again, more people want to live in that landscape. So that again, the young want to take over the businesses of their parents. So that again, you can have shops and schools. Then perhaps we will be moving in the right direction because an ancillary impact of that is that those soils will also have more carbon. There will also be more biodiversity in those landscapes. There is also going to be better management of water and nutrition flows in those landscapes. So that's how I look at it. I look at it as a sociological problem rather than as a purely biophysical problem. Yeah, certainly there are a lot of different ways that you can come at this. And that's a great story that illustrates that, you know, the 
the assets that are on the land are not necessarily going to create healthy communities and industries out of them. And it seems to me that there are a lot of strange incentives in the market right now. Like I used to work in farming, though I've been removed from it for a couple of years. Both Richard and Benedict, you are currently working in farming directly. And I'm wondering, what are some of the incentives that are keeping farmers from going into regenerative practices, even when many of them want to work with nature and improve the fertility and the biodiversity on their landscape. There are many, there are many different reasons why that's not very practical for a lot of farmers at the moment. Benedict, perhaps starting with you, could you speak on some of those strange incentives that are keeping people from doing what they're trying to accomplish? So, I mean, <clears throat> um, I'll, I'll, I'll try to give you my view on things, but then also, um, you know, I don't, I don't know anyone's situation. I can only always speak for myself and tell you what I observe. And, and this might be part of the truth, but, but never the full picture. Um, so a situation that most farmers in our area is in is that they are fighting for their lives, right? So uh, Volker Engelsmann, the CEO from Oster, always says, you, you cannot think green if your figures are red, right? So if you have low precipitation and sandy soil and you're not very profitable as a farming company, you know, you cannot expect them to change suddenly all out, out of it just because they understand they, you know, we have to do more for, for, for animal welfare. And this is, you know, a lot of farmers around the world, I think. Then you have a different group. They have, or they seem to have, very good soil and just the right amount of, of, of water. So they are actually quite, you know, they are earning quite a lot of money and they get subsidies on top of that. So they don't really feel the need nor the interest in changing their practices, right? And then I think you have, and this is probably the biggest group, the big, the, the group in between, and, and irrespective of whatever system they're running, be it ecologically or, or conventional, I think they have realized and they understand that so much is changing, not only, let's say, the climatic situation, but also people's wishes and needs with regard to food and, and uh, how we treat the planet and, and animals and so forth. But they have been brought, and this over the last you know, 20 years, into a system where they are supposed to be compatible on the world market. And that has meant investment, investment, investment in, in technology, specialization. They have built stables, whatever. And so that means many of them, if not most, are already incredibly in debt. And the bank doesn't care if you suddenly want to become more ecologically, um, let's say, uh, viable in a sense that you change your operation. But you know, they are going to ask the annuity on a quarterly basis. And if you have operating costs that are that high, you are just stuck in the system. And, you know, I think even, well, not even, but conventional farmers are far, far beyond what we from the media always seem to think, because they're already testing biological alternatives. They're already trying nurse crops, cover crops, and so forth, because none of them, um, you know, is doing things to actively wanting to harm the animals or the planet, they have been, they, they are doing the best that they can in their respective situations. And I think one thing that you shouldn't, uh, I always tend to remind myself of is that, you know, they, and I mean, the average age of farmers, I think in Germany is about 50, in, in America, it's over 60. 
you know, they have grown up to large parts having to help as eight-year-old kids on the field of their parents doing hay. And they hold the hay in a sense um, where they had things in, 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 on, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the grassland which actually hurt their fingers a lot, right? And then suddenly there was something that made them not having to do this anymore. So there was some um, herbicide, for example, or there was some other technological advances that for them in that sort of phase was an incredible uh, movement forwards, right? I mean, now looking back, it was always a way of fighting the symptoms and we're doing this today with digitalization in many forms as well. But I think you always have to think about how we actually came from. And if we acknowledge that they have always trying to do the best they can, the question today is not saying, well, the farmers are doing it wrong and they should be doing this and they should be doing that. No, it's more like, what can we as a society, and this includes politicians, science, it includes us as people who eat and buy, what can we do for, for farmers? What can we do to help farmers actually transition into a farming methodologies where we actually accept the planet's boundaries? I very much agree with that statement. That I, I, I hope that throughout this entire thing, we give the impression that we're here to try and help and support the people who are making these transitions and those who desire to as well. I completely agree that farmers are very hardworking and up against quite a lot of barriers. Richard, could you explain a little bit more from your perspective? Because I know one of the things that you've taught from a lot is understanding the unique context that anybody might be working from and using that as a basis for application for development of farms and the economies that support them. Sure, I guess my response touches on many things that have been said already and that we will speak more about, no doubt. But to contextualize my context, I, I'm not in the business of talking to people who aren't coming to me, as it were. I, I wouldn't recommend anyone trying to convince someone else how to do something. I think that's quite important because everyone's out there doing their their best for in their context. And having said that, educational like literacy around ecosystem processes and managing complexity is perhaps the biggest weakness I see across the farming community. Farmers are not trained to uh, make decisions in the face of complexity. And my experience of agriculture school was that the sons and daughters of farmers are essentially learning how to maintain machinery and application rates and things like this. And that's not farming, that's the work of a technician. That's not even farming. And so education is obviously a, a big thing but I learned very early in my consulting career not to, you know, I'm not out to try and convince anyone to do anything differently. I think that's smacking your head against a wall and taking aspirin to deal with a headache. It's a, a flawed approach. I think like extending on what Patrick was saying a bit, it, like we're dealing with the climate of the mind and that's the, the hardest bit to shift. Um, and I think pride and arrogance is a big part of it like pride and arrogance, my grandfather did it like this, my father did it like this, and that's why we do it like this. You know, there's so many disastrous farming practices that are just based on lack of knowledge. And I think that 
yeah, education's a big a big part of my own pathway, but I think it's it, it needs to be very carefully tuned to time, place, and circumstance. And I don't know how you address that on a society-wide scale because it doesn't work like that. And that's the problem with our institutions also, which by nature and through history are only moving with public opinion. And, you know, the leaders in this field are, are generally not coming out of institutions. All of the farmers that inspire me didn't go to agricultural schools. And that says, you know, there's a lot to reflect on there. But from an economic climatic perspective, I, I have quite a different view to Benedict. I think, uh, you know, there's a lot to be said for the hustling spirit of entrepreneurship, you know, and if you're a commodity farmer producing a commodity crop, then you know, you're, you're setting yourself up for bad business, essentially. I mean, I always think about this dairy farm that set up the same month we set up our farm about four kilometers down the road. And they are a typical modern dairy. They've invested 10 million euros. It's a robotic, fully modern dairy where animals are not outside and forage is brought to the animals and they win awards for the highest production per cow. And from a banking, modern banking perspective, it's a good business because they turn over a huge amount of money, but it costs them such a high amount to produce a commodity that they have no control over the price over. And our small little farm that started the same year is far, far more profitable from any economic standpoint. It just doesn't look good from a banking perspective because we're not in debt to anyone. Right? So I'm you know, I'm representing small farmers, but I'm, I'm interested in that interface between small scale regenerative agriculture and interfacing with commodity farmers, because they're two different worlds, essentially. And, you know, farmers are, are renowned for victim mentality. And I think subsidies and looking at these sort of things is this is where i disagree with benedict a bit it's like i don't know if i want to see funding and subsidies for good farming because i think there's a lot to be said for a new breed of farmers that are hustling that are entrepreneurs and we've demonstrated this and hundreds of other people are demonstrating this that it's almost like you disadvantage yourself if you don't have to make strategic business decisions. And this is the problem with mainstream commercial commodity farming is when you subsidize farmers, you take away their responsibility. And I'm speaking very simply and very plainly about it, but it's it's a the quickest way you could force people to make responsible decisions is stop subsidizing farmers. Now, it's obviously not that simple, but that would be the quickest route to change because people can't afford to run businesses that don't work. And let's face it, most modern agriculture does not work. It's as simple as that, it does not work. And so what are the models that do work? And we have plenty of them. And how do we scale and replicate those? And ultimately it looks like a lot more small farms. But I don't know if I wanna see small farms getting funding. I've been reflecting on the points that I hope we talk about this evening, which are for me, the things that 
need to be addressed for the wider engagement of regenerative agriculture education, access to land, dealing with regulations that are archaic and written for industrial processing. And, and finance is, is another thing, but I'm really not up for financing farming. I think people need to design businesses that work. And if they can't, they shouldn't be farming. They shouldn't be in control of that land. That might be, you know, yeah, I guess that's going a bit upstream, but that's, that's how I feel about it. And I hope we can unpack those things a bit. Um, if I may, I think Richard's put his finger on, on two very important things here. The first is the current subsidy regime is an absolute nightmare. Um, it is a nightmare because it keeps a lot of farmers uh, 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 suckling at a public teat uh, where they are unable to take strategic decisions. But it is even more of a nightmare because the rules and regulations attached to, that, uh, to those subsidies are so complicated that it prevents farmers from truly innovating. Right, I'm the president of the European Agroforestry Federation. We know, we've got the science, we've got decades of studies to prove that you can completely revolutionize your farming systems, make it more resilient, more efficient, better for the planet, whatever you like, if you simply start mixing it up with trees. But you might lose your pillar one payments, and so people don't do it. So in an ideal world, I think we would all agree it would be much better if there were no subsidies. But we do not live in an ideal world. We live in a world in which subsidies are going to continue being paid, and so right now, the good farmers are competing against bad farmers whose lack of good farming is subsidized. And I would much rather have the subsidies flow into the pockets of the good farmers than flow into the pockets of the bad farmers. And there we reach the second problem that you alluded to earlier in your, in, in your talk, um, which is that right now, farming as an idea is completely controlled by the only part of the farming value chain that is making money hand over fist. And that part are the seed breeders, the fertilizer makers, the pesticides and herbicide sellers. It's an oligopoly of less than a dozen companies worldwide that are selling to every commercial farmer around the world. The profits are measured in tens of billions of dollars a year. And a significant proportion of these profits are used to ensure one, that the profits keep flowing, which means an enormous amount of lobbying, which means writing legislation, which means, which means convincing leaders in parliament and in government that this is the only way to farm. And the way you do that is not even by lying. The way you do that is simply by controlling the discourse. When you have that much money, you control what gets taught in the universities. You control what appears in the farming magazines. Hell. In a number of European countries, the farming cooperatives, the bodies supposed to represent farmers, are selling this stuff and have, in effect, become part of that machinery. We know the agroforesters, the permaculturalists, the holistic grazers, all the regenerative agriculturalists, these hundreds of different kinds of farming that are being trialed across our continent and worldwide, that these things work better. They generate more resilience, they cost much less to put in place. As Richard said, you end up being more profitable, even though you invest a lot less money. But getting that message out in an environment which is completely controlled by an industry that has an interest in getting farmers to borrow 10 million euros to put in place a robotic dairy shed in which the cows never go out is always going to be difficult. So the question is not which farming system is better or worse. The question is, how do you get the message out into a landscape in which subsidies encourage you to farm badly and in which the discourse is controlled by an industry that encourages you to feed badly in order to get more farmers to 
dip their toes in the pool and try to do things a little bit differently? That to me is a fundamental question. Before we move on to another topic, Benedict, would you like to respond to some of those statements? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, I don't think necessarily that, you know, my opinion is that different uh, to Richard's. Um, with regard to, you know, in a perfect world, I am not a fan of subsidies at all, but we have to acknowledge that we live in the system that we live in. And we have to acknowledge that the farmers that are in that system, they are caught in the system and they, they cannot just simply switch that. And it, it takes new knowledge. It takes new forms of investment. It takes new forms of being able to talk about the produce that you pr produce. It, it just requires a huge new set of 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 of, uh, of skill, uh, like a new skill set. And if you've been doing this for many years, there's also an emotional factor in thinking, rethinking the way that you see what you're doing. Because if you suddenly ch change or you, you acknowledge to change out of your system, this in line or in a, in a sense means that you are saying, well, you know, this is what my grandfather or my father or me have, have been doing for 20, 25 years. It wasn't that good. And this is something that on a, on a personal individual perspective, I don't think many of us here in this, in this round, I would be very happy to do so, right? So there is a huge emotional aspect to it also. And I think, you know, it, it, it is a challenging world that we've, what we've kind of navigated ourselves into. And I, I always think, you know, the question is not like, how do we, you know, how do we convince other people? It's how, what are sort of the, 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 the tools that we can use in order to basically build a narrative that draws them into the right direction. And I think the subsidy program is not something that is perfect but it could be rigged in certain areas that will help us moving into a direction because we would pay for certain things that we believe um, are, are a good thing to pay for. And I mean, to, to keep it simple, I mean, we are a big farm, um, but what I have been doing or what, what our team is doing, you know, we are investing, but we are investing in soil, in trees and animals and in humans. And I think this is our way of becoming you know, a, a farm that becomes more resilient with regards to not only the climatic situation, but also with regards to more products being more diverse, increasing biodiversity and so forth and using nature in the sense that it will always help us. Um, but I think, you know, we, we just need to have more of the different, um, let's say data points. We need more sort of the scientific community because we have huge structural problems it's not only only the farmers it's the scientific community that today is is mostly either um let's say looked at through english citations or citations in english-speaking journals um or they are or they are sort of valued by looking at how many um capital they they, they source from third parties and that those that that capital doesn't come from uh, in most parts, doesn't come from a, a family farm in Obamagal, but it comes obviously from the industry. So there's a huge area of, of um, let's say, the whole structural um, farming world that we are in, and we have to change all of it at the same time, if possible. And <laughs> and the question is, which which step to go first? I wonder, Oliver, can I say a few things, Sam? Yeah, go ahead. 
by all means. Thanks. I yeah, I, I feel like like I can totally resonate with what both Benedict and Patrick are saying. I think it like it needs a bit of systems thinking approach to to try and organize the network of who are the right people for the right job because we need people empowered at every level of this. Like there's like my role is very specifically with getting particularly young people into small scale profitable farming. That's my job. And I, I'm not so interested in sitting on the board and talking to people that write regulations. That's not my role. I see the need for it, of course, but there's a there's a need to organize our wider network to position the right people for the right tasks in those places because it's it strikes me that a lot of these things are more malleable than they might appear and i'd like to just bring up a few examples of that uh, specifically around regulations and i find it really interesting to see how how simple and yet frustratingly difficult those things are to move but let me speak of a few examples and I hope that that will bring some hope to to folks you know I know a lot of people especially Germans have got <laughs> incredibly hard <laughs> regulations to deal with but when I moved to Sweden I set up enterprises that are quite common in the states and other places but Sweden I would say is 20 years behind the rest of Europe and so the pastured poultry enterprises we ran here had not been run. No one had even played around with those ideas. And when we set up eggmobiles, for example, there's been a whole lot of issues that different people around Europe have had copying that model and, and pushing up against regulations specifically around scratching space under their eggmobiles. And I know Germans particularly have an issue with this. But this year we had... Uh, a training around pasture poultry where 15 Swedish producers came and we got to sit down and really talk about the nuances of regulations. And, and what transpired is that Sweden is now changing its regulations around the supposed scratch space under eggmobiles that are totally unnecessary. They're needed in industrial barn settings, but they're totally unnecessary in an eggmobile setting where birds are outside all day and come in to sleep. For example, you have to have food and water in their shelters. But in reality, our birds only go inside when they're asleep. So they have no need for water or food. That's just totally nonsense. You know, they're not eating or drinking at night. And what's happened is that they've actually started rewriting the regulations. And last month and the month before, they've updated their policies and that has only come about because we moved here, set up Eggmobiles, and 50 other people copied that, right? So that regulation is shifting, and that's not nothing, right? And then another story from this summer, talking with uh, a lady that runs an organic meat distribution company who sits on the board for, like, organic farmers, who does, who they talk to the government and bodies, they had an interesting story where here in Sweden, obviously, it's very cold in the winter, long, deep snows. And we have a regulation. We, we have EU regulations and then we have Swedish regulations on top of it. But we have a, a rule that all animals must have access to indoor spaces all year round. 
which is totally nonsense. And we have hardy species here that actually don't want to be inside. So we have hardy native pigs, cows, sheep that choose to be outside the whole year. And if you give them a shelter, they never even use it. So this has been something that the organic farming bodies have been trying to push against government to say, hey, we need to change this. And interestingly, the, the all the parties in Swedish uh, government said, yeah, we'll change this, except one who only got the notes for the meeting the night before voting. And so they just they uh, stood against it because they hadn't read it. And that just shows how fickle sometimes these processes are. Right? And I could say the same about our, the slaughtery we built on our farm, which is Europe's cheapest approved slaughter facilities. That's opened up the doors for dozens of other farms to do that. And the reason I'm saying this is that some of these regulatory things are very malleable and it needs people on the ground changing and actually just doing it. And people that are smarter than their inspectors who are willing to treat their regulators and inspectors like colleagues and part of their community, you know. When I set up our farm, I knew there were two routes. We could follow the Joel Stallett and American route and try and work around regulations. Or we could say, hey, these are people that are in our community and they're part of our world and we could treat them with the respect of we treat anyone. And that's proven to be a better way to build a business and more successfully socially too. But likewise, I think, you know, that's the layer and level that I'm working on and that's needed too. And then we need that at the people sitting at the board level talking in between farmers and government, etc. We need people at all those levels. It's, it's not we need one or the other. We need all of it. And that's something important to think about, I think. That's a very good point, and it kind of brings me to what I was going to ask, which is with so many different factors influencing the farming community and the farming industry, we talked about, you know, larger agribusiness, commodity crop prices, uh, regulation from governments, it starts to become sort of a chicken or the egg question as to what influences what first or what can start the ball rolling in order to influence the culture of farming and the industry at large into shifting into something that is much more ecologically sustainable or ideally regenerative. Perhaps Patrick, could you give us some insight onto what you think is the starting point or what is the linchpin that needs to begin to move in order to see larger change within the culture? Uh, it's an interesting one. It's really a chicken and egg question. Um, I would say almost always it starts with understanding and knowledge. Uh, what Richard pointed out is that he came to Sweden and he introduced his eggmobiles, which nobody had ever seen before, because they're obviously a great idea and they work. People started copying it. At the same time, he was talking to regulators to change the regulations to authorize his, his new method of production in that context. The key here is that you had a farmer, Richard, that was already equipped with the right degree of knowledge. And we also had the social skills to socialize that knowledge amongst other producers in his landscape. And I would say very often that that is what is missing. Benedict made that point, Richard made that point, um, that right now, uh, when you go to agricultural college, you are basically being trained to be a glorified technician that knows how to fix his tractor, which is great. You do need to know how to fix your tractor, but there's a lot more to farming than that, right? And this, this bit, there is a lot more to farming than that, is what is usually missing. So I would very much encourage 
the, 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 the people with an influence on the educational system to ensure that much more space is made in the curricula at uh, agricultural schools, agricultural colleges, and indeed universities um, to study the way ecosystems function, the way agroecosystems have to be managed, the way that different components of agroecosystems interact with one another, and the way they do so dynamically, not only across the seasons, but also in the changing climates. You need to equip people with the, 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 the knowledge tools they need to be able to read their land so that their first reaction is not to reach for the machine or reach for the sprayer, but their first reaction is to try to understand what's going on and how they could tweak their system and what is happening on their land to minimize the need for further intervention. Um, if you start with that educational component, you will have everybody having at least a basic understanding in the landscape of what agroecological approaches actually mean in practice. And then you end up in the situation where you will, as usual, have a bell curve with some farmers who are more entrepreneurial and other farmers who are less entrepreneurial. And those who are more entrepreneurial are going to give it a go. Those who are more entrepreneurial are going to start playing with the eggmobiles and all the rest of it. And they are going to encourage those that surround them. Um, if you do that, and if that happens at scale, then the inspectors, the regulators, the private sector buyers, the value chain actors will begin to understand that these are techniques that are promising and they will stop standing in the way and they will start becoming partners. Now, obviously, I'm painting an idealized picture of what needs to happen, but um, a lot of the work that we do uh, professionally is, is, is actually in, in poorer countries, uh, in Africa and Asia. And paradoxically, the advantages that you have there is the fact that there are no subsidies and that very often there are no regulations. So farmers can be a lot more innovative than they are in Europe in order in terms of trying out something and what we find is that once farmers once you have some farmers in the landscape that know what they're doing and that do it well then through processes of social diffusion surrounding producers start adopting these techniques and try to copy them the same thing can happen in europe if you make sure that this knowledge spreads and, and i'm glad to see that we're 85 participants today but if European farming realized how important this debate was, it wouldn't be 85 participants tonight, it would be 85,000 participants tonight. I don't know if we have the bandwidth for that, but we'll try to get there. <laughs> Benedict, what about you? Can you tell us about some of the factors that you've seen that could help to move this initiative along that perhaps not everybody else is thinking about or are not as large a part of the discussion? Um, <clears throat> I think the one thing that, that I observe on a very regular basis is, you know, I think the most important part is how do we get producers or farmers out of their red race, right? Like, how can you find a space where they actually have the emotional freedom to take a step back and think about what they're doing and, and the profitability of it and, and where they have uh, the potential to change that thing because this is a phenomenon uh, that we see in every industry why why uh, you know why is one more innovative than the other because they understand that doing nothing you know could mean you become much more productive that, that doing nothing would mean you can actually think about what you're really doing and i think one one aspect of that is having places having farms all around the world in the different climatic situations with different sort of 
let's say, different foci of production that you can use for farmers to come and feel and touch and understand and actually emotionally live through and, and, and then see it. Because I think you have to sort of have that emotional inspiration that you can say, all right, okay, I understand it. This, this makes complete sense. And this is the funny thing. The farmers that come to our place, for example, when once they start seeing it, they're like, oh, wow, yeah, okay, right? And I think that is really important. Uh, the, the best example is we have uh, uh, Anand Deacon, who uh, some of the climate farmers here are aware of, um, which uh, we gave land to. And they are a couple that haven't been in farming beforehand, but they started doing a market gardening on, on, on uh, 2.4 hectares of our land. And it's incredible what they have done. It is beautiful what they have achieved and what they have built and the produce that me and my family get. It's, you know, it has such an incredible value. Economically wise, it doesn't make that much sense for us as a farm, um, but that's just a side argument. But the interesting thing is that we have, you know, they have been looking for land for three years around Berlin and they couldn't find anything. And then we met and actually it continued uh, in a sense that we now work together. And now I have farmers, the same farmers that told them, no, I'm not giving you any land. And they come, they see it and they're like, oh, that's beautiful. Can you do this at my place? Do you have any friends who can do it at my place? And it's just this one moment, one second, taking them out of their actual thinking and showing something new. And they're like, oh yeah, it makes total sense. So I think that experiencing and emotional going through that process is, is, a, is a key thing. And then of course, and, and this shouldn't be underestimated as well, um, we just need more sort of average calculations, average uh, sort of in, in Germany, we have this company called Kuratorium für whatever Bauwesen. It just has basically averages of any form of production you can possibly think of. So if I'm doing agroforestry system with plums and pears and I don't know, something in between, what kind of hours do I have to calculate having to collect the seeds in order to plant the seeds? How many meters do I need? How many people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you can actually, when you plan, when you think about it, you actually have some, some real values you can work with, you can sort of use in order to find the, the, the concept for your area. Because as of today, especially in Germany, you know, it's, it's such a leap of faith. You know, you not only have to um, basically be able to not wanting to take the subsidies, but you also have to basically do research and development because there's not that much there yet available in the German context. And I think this is gonna be crucial as well. So it's, it's, it's the average values and average calculation basis on one side. And it's like finding that space, that emotional freedom where, where they actually can emotionally live through some examples of, of what you can actually do. Now, I know all of you have played a big role in helping to disseminate some of this information and educate others on the potential of what can happen to your farm business in adopting these ecological practices, perhaps starting with Richard, because you've been so prominent in this role as an educator through your Farm Like a Hero uh, experience, which I've been on as well and got a lot out of. Can you talk about what it means to communicate the potential of regenerative farming and running this as a community service business that makes a meaningful income for the people who practice it? I think that comes up mostly, you know, in the smaller spheres of the people we interact with. I think it's why I've always focused on the numbers and the books I've written have been so detailed in time and motion studies and financials because it's, you know, certainly, 
interacting with the youth of today, I mean, I still feel like a kid, but when I meet people 10, 15 years younger than me, I see that they're growing up in a very, very different world to what I grew up in. And indeed, the skills required to farm successfully today are a million miles away from a generation ago, you know. And I think that the a point that I hit on very early on was that I need to demonstrate viable economy to young people or why the hell would they want to take on a decrepit piece of land and business, right? We need to be the rock stars in our communities. We need to be the ones that are like elevated because we're providing the food security. And I don't mean that in any ridiculous way. I just mean like we need to, you know, farming, as Patrick said, it's got one of the highest suicide rates of any profession on the planet. It used to be the most noble profession of all. And so I'm very interested in, well, how do you restore that? And it comes to these three legs. It's got to be regenerating land. It's got to be good for the customers and providing something better than in, they can find in any shop or restaurant. And it's got to be financially good for me. I need a white collar salary because I'm working probably harder than they are. And I've focused on that. And I'm just thinking about, well, look, the, the enterprises I've demonstrated in our uh, cultural and economic climate are, are things that average between 50 and 200,000 euros a hectare. So what about this for an idea for land access? Why don't we take, you know, in England where I grew up, there used to be, there was a paper put together by allotments. So everyone know an allotment, like a small family space to garden your vegetables, right? And all the allotments in the UK got filled up and then people died and there was no one helping manage them. So then it would take years to get that space freed up for someone else. So some people put, I can't remember the name for people to look this up, but some people worked together to put together a paper that you could take to a farmer to get a, a lease on their land and it provided all the legal and financial basis for this so you could you know a group of 10 of you could go to a farmer and give them a better price than they would get for the crops they're growing to have access securely to a piece of land and i think this is an interesting idea it's like the, the current average per hectare of european farmers is appalling like it's not even business you know, they, they're basically losing money and getting it through subsidies. That's not business. That's shitty business, right? And so what I would like to see is more innovative land access schemes based around entrepreneurship and business, not funding young people to farm. Because if you haven't got that hustle and you, you don't put that work in, you're not going to have that same drive that I see in the colleagues of ours that are successful. It's like we all started with nothing and we hustled and that's a big part of the psychology of success, I think. So there's something important in there. And I think that that's how I would like to see land transition away from bigger landholders. It's like the way to, to go circling back to your question is like how to influence them? Well, through my lifestyle and through the way I live, that's the way to influence them. Talking doesn't do anything, not interested in it. It's like when they can see I eat the best food, I eat a whole human diet from my farm and I have plenty of downtime, 
I have a beautiful family life with my kids around me all day. When they, when they can see tangible things that are beneficial to them, that's when they start asking questions and there's no discussion before that. But at the same time, to influence that further, what about innovative land access schemes where I can, where someone who has a better brain for legalities and legalese could put together country specific forms where I can go to a farmer and guarantee them a better rate. Because the enterprises are proven, they're given, they're all over Europe. We know how to farm these things. We know how to set up markets. I mean, I'm in as rural a market as you could get. So it's replicable all over the place. Obviously it's dependent on particular nuances to culture and time, place and circumstance, but anyone with half a wit about them can work that out. And I think that we could be taking over underutilized farmland and resource bases. And that's a way that we could put more land into innovative farming and at the same time, rub off more directly and influence our direct spheres which is ultimately the only people we can really interact with on that intimate level i don't know if i was very clear in that point but that's something i'd like to explore more <laughs> indeed unfortunately we just have limited time there's so many things i would love to explore with all of you here and even be able to open it up more to the guests but as we're starting to run down on time perhaps we could talk a little about what those of us who are not actively managing land or farming can do to help in this transition, especially from the perspective of those of you who are in farming and Patrick, who has a better idea of things at the governmental level, the European Union, perhaps starting with Patrick. You know that there was for centuries, um, people were distrustful of democracy because they confused it with mob rule. And they idealized um, uh, something that was first formulated by Plato, the Greek philosopher, as a rule by experts. We actually have something like that happening in Europe right now. These experts are people sitting in the European Commission. When I interact with people in the Director Generals for Agriculture, for Environment, for Climate, for Research, by and large, I am dealing with extremely well-educated, extremely clever, multilingual people who do not have a personal interest in pushing A or B, but who are generally interested in trying to find the right way forward. It's between that and reality that the sausage factory sits, Churchill's sausage factory, and that politics intervenes. And you have a classical example happening right now where the European Commission put some decent proposals on the table called the European Green Deal, the biodiversity strategy, the farm to fork strategy, and the politicians in the European Parliament and in the member states just immediately rowed all that right back to ensure that the status quo business as usual input intensive agriculture would not be threatened. So how do you help the experts prevail over the politicians is, 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 is in effect the question you're asking me here. And there's two ways you can do that. The very first is to ensure that Richard's main argument becomes very widely socialized. It, this is not about making farmers poorer, it is about making farmers richer. It is about giving them a better lifestyle. It is about giving them more income, more resilience, better security, including financial security. That is absolutely fundamental and that message has to be pumped out time and time again. The second thing is that all of us as eaters, as simple consumers, have to take the time every week 
be it only for 10 or 15 minutes, to sign the bloody petitions, to write letters to our MPs and our MEPs, to make sure that the politicians understand that there is a large number of people out there who feel passionately enough about this that they are willing to spend some time interacting about it, even if it is not something that affects their direct livelihoods because they are not farmers themselves. Those two things would provide a countervailing force to the arguments for the status quo-ness of things. And those two things can work. For example, you find that in, in, in Europe, landowners are a very powerful group. Um, both the new corporate landowners and also the old aristocratic landowners that control most of the land uh, 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 on this continent. Now, what's interesting about this group is that they tend to have longer time frames, longer time horizons than people who are merely operating in the financial economy. They are not just interesting in what's happening next quarter, they're interesting in what's happening 10 years down the road. In the case of family-run businesses, they're interested in leaving good land in good condition to their children and grandchildren. And that is the third um, uh, axis on which we can work. We can work with landowners to get them to understand that farming regeneratively is about protecting their capital base, not only to ensure their own income today, but also to ensure the income of their children and grandchildren far into the future. So three things. First, emphasize time and time again that regenerative agriculture is a way of making farmers more comfortable, better off, more resilient, richer, doesn't matter how you describe it, as long as the idea is you're better off than being a conventional farmer. Second, ensure that the politicians understand that this is important and do it through the usual tools that the modern digital economy allows us, the petitions, the emails, the, uh, the, the, the sharing stuff on Instagram, on Snapchat and Facebook and what have you. And third, I've forgotten what the third was. There you go, I'm forgetting my own summary. Oh, God, I hate being 55 years old. Your memory goes. <laughs> Don't worry, we can hand it back to you if you remember in a minute. Um, Benedict, would you like to say a few words on the topic? Um, yeah, I think Patrick uh, summed it up uh, beautifully. I think the only thing that I would maybe add is, um, you know, showing, showing a general interest in the topic and basically being more critical also with with regards to many of the things that we today get from media. You know, if I think about, let's say, the whole vegan movement, for example, which, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm more of, I'm, I'm very aware that we, of course, have to cut down on the consumption of meat and especially with regards to where that, where that meat comes from. But we live in a really complex and, and difficult ecosystem or, or thousands of ecosystems in that, in that case. But we have to be more aware of, you know, there is no right and wrong answer in many of those situations. And, you know, having actually an opinion, I think you should also start looking into those kind of things and not just follow, uh, just, just follow the hype, so to say. So I think there's a lot on the side of, you know, actually getting involved and getting, you know, actually informing yourself in a sense, right? And I think another aspect is, um, you know, bringing that sort of that 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 knowledge base, but also the sort of the the, the inspiration of what is out there with regards to different agroforestry methods, synthetic uh, agriculture, holistic grazing, all of it, market gardening, of course, um, to the universities, for example, through having people 
do internships at your place, do by by having people involved that not usually have that much or strong contact to the farming sector, to the farming world, by inviting them over for any kind of pro events and letting them partake in those processes. And then they bring that knowledge and or not the knowledge maybe necessarily, but they bring that interest into the universities and suddenly that you have in, in the university from, from the bottom up, so to say, uh, you have a drive towards those kind of topics which beforehand weren't that, that, that interesting, right? So I think there's, there's a lot about the whole sort of using technology and information in the sense of spreading the word, but at the same time um, trying to um, yeah, inform you as well as you can. And Richard, do you have anything you'd like to add for active steps that listeners can take from their part to help to move this forward? Yeah, totally. And I think that, um, like, obviously, the way people consume is very important. Social media today has massive impact, and people all have access and, and influence on that. And I want to say, actually, that this stuff is already way more mainstream than people perhaps realize and i want to say as i mentioned before like i don't hold faith in institutions leading the way in this because historically they never have and that's certainly in the last 400 years of history that i can you know by my estimation and i i figure that you know it's public opinion that drives institutions and when you look at netflix when you listen to podcasts like joe rogan or some of the biggest influential channels on the planet regenerative agriculture is mentioned weekly like this is is happening it's already going mainstream and so i just think that the more people make noise about that that's what will drive our institutions not a few people sitting somewhere remotely from this that's not where the change is going to come from so thanks again to the three panelists, Richard, Patrick, and Benedict, who are all working tirelessly to create a healthier and more equitable food system in Europe and around the world. And a special thanks to the team at Climate Farmers for organizing the event and to all the incredible people who showed up and supported the launch. Now, as great as it is to include multiple experience perspectives on the topics that we covered in this panel, it's impossible to include the full range of opinions and viewpoints that are out there. And that's why I'm inviting you to join the growing community building regenerative skills to use in your daily lives. Now, it'll always be free to join. All you have to do is follow the links on the homepage of the Regenerative Skills website. And the benefit of joining through the Discord channel is that unlike social media platforms that mine your personal data and manipulate your feeds based on algorithms just to sell you more junk, I founded these channels purely for knowledge, skill, and story exchange between the people who care to make their worlds better for everyone. This week's question is, what do you envision as a regenerative food future for the world? How will we steward our food sheds, distribute the yields equitably, manage waste or surplus, and return health and nutrients to the land? There are so many ways to approach this vision, and I can't wait to hear about yours. And don't forget, you can also help to guide the panel discussions that I've got planned for the future. So there it is. That's our show for this week. Until the next episode, I'll catch you on the forums.